I'm Sean Haney, and this is Real Ag on the Weekend. Let's get real and get connected with the week that was in Canadian agriculture. Real Ag on the Weekend starts now. Welcome to Real Ag on the Weekend here on 650CKOM and 980CGME. I'm your host, Sean Haney of realagriculture.com, also host of the Real Ag Radio podcast. It is great to be with you here again on the weekend, and I hope you had yourself a great week. Weather okay? We, we continue to drift a little. A little closer to springtime, and uh, yeah, I hope you had yourself a great week. Like I said, so we got a lot to discuss here on today's program. I got a, I got some opinion for you. I got some data for you. We're also going to hear a little bit about the markets, which are ugly, Ooh, gross, nasty. Yes, if you if you are not a farmer, you're listening to this uh, in Saskatoon or Regina, you know. The, bad. <laughs> the market has been diving lower, it seems. Uh, farmers definitely looking at selling their wheat and their canola for less here in 2024 than they did in 23, 22, or 21. That That is for sure. Uh, we're, so we're going to hear from Neil Townsend of Grain Fox about the markets. We're also going to hear about the shortage of labor. We're going to hear from Jennifer Wright. She is with the Canadian Agricultural Human Resource Council. They've got some new data out on what things look like going out to 2030. The situation is becoming a lot more dire. Ooh, I'm sorry to scare you, but it feels like I'm a little bit kind of the bad news Charlie here today. But uh, yeah, there's big issues to discuss here today on Real Ag on the weekend. Well, if you have any feedback on today's program, we'd love to hear from you. You can send me an email, shaney at realagriculture.com. You can also find us across all the different social media platforms, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, TikTok, threads. I guess I should say X instead of Twitter. I'm still trying to get into that that habit. You can also call the Real Ag Feedback Line. Now, the number there is 855-776-6147. You, if there's something you hear today on the program, you agree with, disagree with, want to follow up, or make up more questions. Maybe you got like a topic suggestion. We'd just love to hear from you. So make sure you give us that feedback. This week, we, we saw a lot of outrage. And, and, and quite frankly, you know, if I was to accumulate where I saw a lot of the tweets and the Instagram memes and where it all came from... Saskatchewan was kind of uh, a big pusher of it. And this was the outrage, and I'll use the word outrage, basically from a photo of a tweet from Minister of Agriculture and Agri-Food, Lawrence McCauley, is in in the Indo-Pacific region this week. Okay? And uh, the, the whole thrust of the reason that the Canadian delegation went over to... Malaysia and the Philippines and to open this office is basically to open this office in Manila. Okay. This is uh, the new Indo-Pacific trade office for agriculture and agri-food. This puts boots on the ground, technical expertise in the region where Canada, quite frankly, is trying to significantly boost its trade portfolio with countries like the Philippines, with India, with Vietnam, with South Korea. There's a lot of work to be done. And there's a lot of opportunity for Canadian beef, for Canadian pork, Canadian oats, pulse crops, uh, Canadian seafood. There's there's a long list. Okay, I'm not there's and, and I've I've written a column about this, 
and a few people pointed out a few commodities that I missed, but I, I, it's not intentional, I promise you. But that's the whole point. We're trying to expand trade. What would, and if you talk to anybody in Canadian agriculture in the exportable commodity areas, like in corn and beans and canola and, and, and wheat and pulses, any, anywhere in Saskatchewan, they would say, I want this government to focus on trade. You, you, and in, in January, in our Real Agri-Studies research work, trade, market access was one of the big one of the big policy issues that farmers felt would have a positive impact on them if the government focused on it. So you're saying that yourself. Were we happy? Nope, we weren't. <laughs> we were not happy. What happened was, is Minister Macaulay, I think they landed in, the, in, in Malaysia, and he tweeted a picture of himself, fresh off the plane, having a, a lobster dinner and enjoying Canadian lobster at that. Well, let me tell you, people flipped out. And there was different versions of the of the the outrage. One was that you know how expensive was that lobster? How detached is that from you know the the plight of regular Canadians trying to put groceries on their table? This week, and here the minister's flaunting the fact that he's overseas, and he's flaunting the fact that he's eating, you know, lobster and dining on the best. What did this meal cost? This is ridiculous. There was that, and then there was also people connecting it to the carbon tax. Um, now, I on this show have been exceptionally critical of the carbon tax policy, but everything is not. We don't have to cross swords on everything. I want the minister. Okay, so has the minister talked in the House of Commons routinely about the, the, his belief in a price on carbon? Yes, he has. Have, we been have I been critical of that? Yes, I have. I, I am fully in support of removing the carbon tax as a policy to, to reduce emissions and change the behaviors of Canadians. I think there's other ways to go about it, but that's a side note. But there was a lot of people pointing out the minister was being hypocritical for flying over to the Indo-Pacific region in the first place because he's in favor of a carbon tax. So I, I see what we're doing here. I, I just don't think those dots really connect. And I, I think we're losing the broader picture here of what our expectations should be for Minister McCauley. I, for one, have been very critical of this government the fact that I don't think they focused enough on trade. I, I think one of the things they do is they talk too much about supply management as the, in, inside the trade sphere. We saw Minister Ng speaking at the Dairy Farmers of Canada meeting at their AGM. She doesn't speak at any other AGMs for other farm organizations. So I'm happy that they're focusing on trade. I, I'm happy, like all, mo like honestly, I would say all farm organizations have been this week congratulating and being very happy that this government has opened this AFC office in the Indo-Pacific region because everybody knows that it's so important to our trade diversification future and trying to get a, a leg up, especially against other countries like the U.S., who's also trying to compete in those same countries in that same region. So instead of seeing the broader picture we have resulted to the fact that one, he shouldn't be on the trip, and two, he shouldn't be eating lobster. 
I have asked a few people, which I've really not gotten a bit of a straight answer, what would have been appropriate for the minister to be eating in that tweet that he put out of him eating some great Canadian lobster? If he was eating a Canadian steak, would that, would that have been different? It might have been for some because they're producing beef. I think there's a bit of a detachment here on how important seafood exports are to Atlantic Canada when it comes to agricultural exports. Some people suggested he should be eating just a regular sandwich, like regular. Like we've we've tipped into ridiculous. Whether he's eating lobster or he's eating steak or he's eating a pork tenderloin or he's having chickpea soup, I really don't care. What I do care is they open the office and they're going to have people on the ground, and that, if we execute properly, is going to lead to higher trade exports to the Indo-Pacific region, which honestly, at the end of the day, that works its way back. That's increased demand that works its way back to the farm gate, and that's good for your farm, no matter if you're in Saskatchewan, Alberta, or Ontario, or Atlantic Canada, or BC, wherever you are in Canada. So that's my thoughts. I'd love to hear yours. I'm sure there are some out there that very much disagree with uh, what I've just said, but I'd love to hear from you. Send me an email, shaney at realagriculture.com. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to hear from Neil Townsend of Grain Fox, and he's going to talk about this slide, slide, slippity slide that we are currently on. You're listening to Real Ag on the weekend, and of course, we are on 980CGME and 650CKOM. And welcome back to Real Ag on the weekend. I'm your host, Sean Haney of realagriculture.com. You know, we're going to talk about the markets here in this segment. And, and you deal with many uncertainties on your farm. Managing risk should not be one of them. MMP's ag team specializes in risk management. Visit mmp.ca to learn how you can stay ahead of the game and plan for the unknown. That's mmp.ca. Let's uh, talk markets. And I'm going to play... Now, the full audio of this interview with Neil Townsend of Grain Fox is posted at realagriculture.com. I encourage you to check it out. I'm going to play you a, a snippet of it, a piece of it. And Neil and I really didn't talk about specific commodities. What we did is kind of talk about the overall commodity complex and its continued drive to the downside. Here's Neil Townsend of Grain Fox. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people would immediately identify demand as the culprit and say, like, there's <clears throat> been some weak demand I would beg to differ. I mean, I think if you look at the overall sort of demand that's in the globe, it's it's on pace. I mean, uh, you know, wheat export demand should be up a little bit this year. Uh, you know, corn demand is up a little bit this year and soybeans are sort of, you know, relatively flat. But I mean, um, and I'm talking overall global demand. So I don't think it's demand. I think what what's happened is just that, you know, farmers grew big crops in a lot of different jurisdictions around the world. Supplies are probably heavier than what the uh, USDA was estimating for carry-in for this year. And I, I just think there's uh, lots of competition and the competition is driving the price down. And, uh, you know, we've got willing sellers and, you know, buyers know this and are playing a little bit hard to get. I mean, there are some... Uh, problems with finances and stuff like that. But uh, overall, it's it. Uh, I think it's just a, a case of uh, there being, uh, you know, more more sellers than buyers at the moment in terms of, uh, you know, the willingness of people to, to sell and the buyers are kind of picking that off. Are we at what point are we not oversold here where we've OK, like, OK, where we can expect a little bit of a maybe not a long-term sustained bounce, but some sort of a rally here because we have gone so far so fast. 
Well, I mean, again, looking at the futures positions of the non-commercials, I mean, they are sort of like at multi-year lows or in some cases almost at record, uh, you know, record positions on the short side. And you could say to yourself, well, oh, that, that, you know, once the boat starts to tip the other direction, everybody will run on that side and we'll flip it over into sort of a bull market or something like that. I, I mean, I don't necessarily see it like that because, I mean, first of all, everything is true until it's not true. So, you know, the fact that they're short it doesn't mean that they can't go more short and that's what they've been doing. I mean, they probably need at this point something real and something tangible. Some people have said that, you know, maybe when interest rates start to get cut, that will help. But that's sort of a non-supply and demand balance sheet thing. That's an outside factor. I mean, yeah. you know, that might happen. But on, you know, on the sort of if you were looking at fundamentals as a driver of the futures, I mean, you would kind of look forward and say, well, where are there going to be like narrowing ending stocks, tight ending stocks, what would kind of give them an indication that there's sort of like a tighter supply so that, you know, they should uh, be, um, you know, looking at uh, getting, um, you know, on the other side and going long. And I, I don't see that for the remainder of 23, 24 necessarily, unless we start to have a big sort of perception that we're going to have, you know, a drought in North America. And there are maps. I mean, there are drought conditions right now in Iowa, a big one centered there, and it seems to be growing. And, you know, Western Canada is very dry. But again, it's February 21st. A very few crops are planted in Iowa or planted in uh, Western Canada at the current moment. So, you know, we can't really say that the crop is drought impacted yet. So we'll have to wait and see. And if the drought persists, yes, that could be something that triggers a bit of a reversal. But if we see situation where, you know, the conditions improve and we get a representative crop or an average crop or even a trend crop, I mean, that's just going to add to the balance sheet. And we're going to have a, a situation where, you know, 24, 25 might be more oversupplied than 23, 24. Okay. Well, so let's, we've talked about the bad side of this. Um, it, it, are there, are there positive, like what positives need to come together? You mentioned interest rates. That one's a little like that, that to me smells of like short-term rally, not anything to sort of, yeah. uh, you know, a, a form a base here to, to build from. Is it, is it basically cheering for poor weather conditions again? Because th that just feels counter to our profitability on farm where it's been so dry in certain pockets for so long. We need some moisture. feels like we got kind of a double-edged sword beating us down here. Yeah, I agree. Now, what I'll say about sort of like other signals like interest rates or, or that type of stuff, like I, I'm not a particular expert in that area. I'm just repeating what somebody said there. So yeah. let's focus on the fundamentals. What happens has to happen on the fundamentals. And what I would say is that you know, the unfortunate truth is we're probably in need of, you know, having a weather wreck somewhere to kind of really reverse the trend because, you know, production and stocks are are building. Now, one of the criticisms maybe people could level to is that the USDA is not capturing the real stock levels that are in Russia or the European Union in particular for wheat. Uh, but, you know, we've seen South America sort of wobble a bit, but I mean, you know, is a wobble enough to go from say sort of 165 million uh, bushels, uh, a million tons of soybeans down to 155 million tons of soybeans, or some people are at 145 million tons of soybeans, like, you know, that's certainly going to help. But I, I mean, broadly speaking, you know, there's no real 
concerns on the feed grain side. There's ample corn. Bigger crops are projected to come from Ukraine, Russia. Uh, even the European Union are probably going to have good corn crops at this point. Um, so then you'd have to say, like, you know, is there enough sort of adverse weather going to happen in the U.S. that we could see sort of a cut to the prospect of of corn yield? But the problem there is, like, you know, in the USDA outlook forum, they estimated, I think, 181 or 181.5. I can't remember the exact number for bushels uh, per acre. You know, even if they came in at 175, you know, that's that's a supportive, but not not a trend breaking yield. I, I think it has to be like, you know, 170 or lower. And, and I think that's very hard to get with like, unless you have like prolonged um serious drought issues and a lot of the weather models show that actually the north american drought is due to break and that they they're projecting more or less a relatively normal growing season now those models are can change but that's what they're saying so yeah i mean and then you look at the demand side and the only comment i'd make on the demand side is that you know there's been a lot of poo-pooing about china and china's not there but you know china's demand this year i mean could you really ask for more i mean they've imported a record amount of wheat, a uh, record amount of corn. They've imported large volumes of sorghum. They've imported barley. They've imported, you know, uh, you know, the one thing maybe they're down on is yellow peas. But I mean, everything else is either at or above sort of, uh, you know, record levels. So, you know, I don't think China can offer us more. And maybe the final point I'd make is like, you know, I, I, we should be watching probably the Indian crop for a lot of reasons in Western Canada for pulses and also for wheat, even for canola, a little bit in oil seeds, but you know, India, I don't know if we ever get a full picture of what happened there, but what I would say about India is that, you know, if they were to have sort of stumble here in the next six to eight weeks with like, you know, seriously high temperatures that, you know, uh, reduce the yield potential for the wheat and they actually policy wise say, oh, okay, we're going to import, you know, five or 10 million tons of wheat. I mean, that would have an impact on the wheat prices at least. That was Neil Townsend of Grain Fox. You can hear the rest of that conversation by going to realagriculture.com. We'll be right back here on Real Ag on the weekend, of course, on 650 CQM and 980 CGME. Co-op knows your community because we live here too. Our teams are your trusted partners with a range of expertise to help support your entire farm operation. Co-op, here for your farm, here for your family. Learn more by going to Co-op's website. It's co-op.crs slash farm. Well, with Real Agri-Studies, our market research arm of Real Agriculture, we've been diving into how Canadian farmers are feeling about their their farm financial situation now and into the future, the overall ag economy, the in, in the industry. We ask questions about mental health, and we've talked about it in the past here on, on Real Ag on the weekend. If you want more information, go to realagristudies.com. But I this week, I pulled out some data related to current farm financial performance, Okay. And age is a real driver of the sentiment in, in terms of how people feel today about their current farm financial performance versus 12 months ago. So in aggregate, farmers, farmers said that their current farm financial performance is an 86, which indicates a decline in sentiment 
a stark contrast from a year ago when it stood at 119. Then this is a scale of, of 200, okay? So 119 would be above the 100 line. 86, of course, is in more pessimistic territory. This downward trend reflects a growing concern amongst farmers about their financial health, mirroring the challenges seen in, in some of the crop budgeting is I'm sure you are very familiar with. So as I mentioned, interestingly, age plays a, it plays a crucial role here in shaping these sentiments on current farm financial performance. Now, contrary to what some might expect, it's the under 35 age group that reports feeling better about their current farm financial performance compared to a year ago. Now, specifically, 39% of the under 35 age demographic feel they are better off than a year ago, while 17% of those age 55 and over share this optimism. So 39 to 17, okay? Moreover, a significant portion of each age group reports their financial performance as unchanged, suggesting a level of stability amidst the overall decline. Now, I've got some graphs in a story at realagriculture.com, but what I also can tell you is that above only 21% of the under 35-year-old respondents feel that their current farm financial performance is worse than a year ago, which is the lowest of all the age brackets. Now, this is a trend that fairly clearly shows that as the respondents increase in age, their opinion changes to a more negative sentiment on this question about current farm financial performance. What stands out here as well is the perceived resiliency of this underage, under 35 age group. Their sentiment has remained relatively stable over time, unlike some of the more pronounced declines seen in the older age brackets. This this could reflect a combination of factors. So it could be maybe different risk tolerances, different risk tolerances, I should say, adaptability to market changes, or the impact of innovative farming practices. Like we can throw all the keywords in here we want. Another possible explanation is that younger farmers are more likely to be excluded from the meeting with the accountant or the banker, and therefore they could be basing their answer to this question about current farm financial performance on feel. Or, you know, perception, and maybe not the realities. That, that's a, that's a taking a stab in the dark, too, on a theory. Back to the, the comment, though, about stability. I, I have a chart that shows how each of the age brackets, how they answered the question over the past 18 months on current farm financial performance. And actually, the under 35 age group has been the most stable. The biggest decline, the rest of the age brackets, 35 to 44, 45 to 54, 55 to 64, 65 and over, they have all dropped since the high of last January to now much more significantly than the under 35 age group has. In, in fact, it's, it's very clear when you look at the graph. And I, I apologize, we're on radio, but you should go to realagriculture.com or realagristudies.com and find, and find this story. And, and, and I'll give you those numbers just so you can, you can chew on it a little bit. The under 35 group has only dropped from a 127 to 118 from January of 23 to now. In comparison, the over 65 age group, the oldest of the, of the, the, pop, the, the survey population, has dropped from a 117 to a 77. And what's interesting is a year ago, there wasn't the same noticeable differences between the ages when it came to the sentiment on current farm financial performance. Meaning, in the last 12 months, 
What's changed in the data, we've gone from where age doesn't impact current farm financial performance to it does. This all underscores, I think, the importance of considering demographic nuances when evaluating how farmers feel about what's happening. It also highlights the need for supportive policies and practices that address the diverse challenges that are faced by farmers of different ages across you know, the segments. Here's, here's another thing. I, I've posted this link to this story on, on LinkedIn, and I've seen a number of people and in emails since I posted on realagriculture.com say that the under 35 age group, they're overextended, they're, they don't, they didn't live through the eighties. They're, they're missing the point. And I think it's easy to jump to those conclusions. I'm, I'm not necessarily convinced. I I think there's, there's one. I don't think I believe, I don't think the eighties have anything to do with this. This is about how I felt a year ago versus today. And I have a look at my, my farm financial performance relatively speaking. It's not, how do I feel today about my farm versus how I felt 30 years, 40 years ago? And of course, if you live through the 80s, as an example, or hey, the 30s, it is going to change your perspective on things. But this this data kind of really sticks out. What's also interesting is that a lot of people want to harp on the under 35 age group and and bash them and their lack of financial wherewithal. But the same data holds true that how the under 35 age group feels is very similar to how the farmers over 5 million in revenue feel. They feel much, the, the largest farms in Canada feel also much different about their current farm financial performance than smaller farms. It is interesting when you look at some of these demographics. I would love your feedback on this. Or if you have any questions about some of the things we've talked about here, or hey, what about this? Have you looked at that? Love to hear from you. Send me an email, shaney at realagriculture.com. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the big shortage in labor when it comes to Canadian agriculture. You're listening to Real Egg on the weekend, of course. We are on 980 CGME and 650 CKOM. Excite your crops with inputs from Excite Bio. Access nitrogen and phosphorus with Excite Bio's lineup of inoculants and egg biologicals. Since 2010, they've been helping farmers harness the power of the soil. Learn more at excitebio.ca. That's X-I-T-E-B-I-O dot C-A. Okay, let's dive into a new report out from the Canadian Agricultural Human Resource Council. Lindsay Smith of realagriculture.com had a chance to catch up with Jennifer Wright to discuss some of the data. I have some thoughts after we're done with this interview. Uh, This is our third time doing a uh, full update of the um, agriculture workforce across Canada. And then uh, this is our national report, but we also have... um, provincial and commodity-specific reports coming in the weeks ahead. Um, but it does, uh, it does provide us quite a large overview of um, what's happening across the workforce in Canada and uh, really the impacts that these labour shortages are having on the industry. Um, so as the report says, you know, agriculture plays a really important role in the Canadian economy, not only from an economic point of view, but... Um, for securing food, uh, domestic food supply um, for Canadians and for export as well. And it's about a $38.8 billion um, um, economic um, industry for 
Canada. But with the labour shortage, what we're seeing, um, we've known, you know, agriculture's had a labour shortage that has been growing over the last uh, decades. And we're seeing that just continue to grow where we're estimating it's uh, impacting our sales by about $3.5 billion. And that is an increase from uh, $3 billion uh, that was reported in our last report in 2018. Those are big numbers. I mean, that's a that's a huge chunk of change. So, where does the where do these losses sort of stem from? Is this are these opportunities not met? Is this work that doesn't get done? How do we quantify where these losses are actually coming from? Yeah, it really is. Um, I think in the past in our research, um, we would see that in many cases, um, employers in the employer survey part of the research were just reporting that. Uh, they were, you know, working longer hours and that uh, their employees were working longer hours to try to keep up with the um, not having enough uh, employer employees on the on the ground. Um, but now I would say we're starting to see um, things like um, just not being able to keep up to that demand. Certainly that's not a sustainable way to work either. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, seeing lost sales, seeing things like you know, deciding either to not expand or to reduce um, the amount of production. Um, anecdotally, we've heard of some farmers leaving the industry altogether because they just don't can't keep up to um, trying to meet that workforce demand uh, that, you know, they can't fill. So it does, I think, have a pretty strong impact on the industry overall and certainly on, um, you know, the Canadian food supply. Mm-hmm. Now, there's also in the report, and as you mentioned, there will be sort of subsequent reports on this. This is sort of the overall, the national look, and then you'll delve deeper. But there is in this report, you know, industry-specific challenges broken down by several different industries, and, and they're different between some of these industries. So what what are some of the discrepancies in, you know, trying to find solutions to this issue? What do we see different between, say, you know, a dairy sector or, you know, the grain and oil seed sector? What are some of the differences in the challenges in finding a workforce? Yeah, so there are differences. There's certainly some uh, a lot of commonalities around, um, you know, where the work is done. Most of the Although there is uh, more urban food production than we may have had in the past, most of the uh, food production is, and agriculture production is done in more rural areas. So um, shrinking um, populations in rural areas, um, access to affordable housing in rural areas and um, transportation, things like that impact kind of all the commodities. Mm-hmm. But the way that... Um, things are produced depending on the commodity is also very different. So uh, grains and oil seeds, um, you may have fewer employees, but um, because you have larger equipment, uh, combines, things like that, but you're facing challenges of, again, that rural location, um, some of the, you know, ups and downs of the the season um, because, you know, planting season and harvest season are extremely um, labor intensive. And then, in between might not be as much. Um, and then when you look at, you know, um, cattle, cattle production or animal production, that is kind of a different, more steady, uh, perhaps, work across um, the calendar year. So um, there are some differences, and um, but there are a lot of commonalities as well. Mm-hmm. Now, 
part of this of looking at this issue and and you know we sometimes sort of we get really good at identifying a problem it's a little more difficult to institute change to actually solve said problem but there's there's several different um topics in the building the future workforce uh section and one of that one of those is reaching untapped labor pools so what are some of what from this report, what were some of the findings of where we could be drawing workers that were not? Uh, I think it's um, building awareness um, across populations of the opportunities that are available in agriculture. I think, you know, certainly our organization has been doing quite a bit of work in trying to connect in with um, post-secondary students, for example, that might be in programs not related to agriculture, they, they believe not related to agriculture, where we can really, you know, talk about the opportunities, um, what you could do with your environmental science degree in agriculture, what you could do with your IT degree uh, or diploma in agriculture, and, um, you know, making those connections with students that might be, you know, more suburban, urban um, dwellers at this point, um, but making them aware of what uh, opportunities they could have within the industry. That's, I think, a huge um a huge component of this. I think it's also, you know, connecting in with um, new Canadians and, um, you know, and uh, many uh, new Canadians do bring agriculture experience from where they have uh, from their home country, but they may um, be living in, you know, Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal. How do we connect in better with, um, with them to ensure that they're aware of the opportunities that are here um, in can- Canadian agriculture as well. So a huge amount of work to do um, on that front. Um, certainly through our National Workforce Strategic Plan, we've really brought industry together to talk about some of these um, initiatives and, and some of the things that we can do in, in a number of different areas to ensure that we're addressing this shortage um, so that we don't, you know, continue to have it grow, uh, but that we're putting in um, solutions that can really help um, ensure that the industry has the workforce they need going forward. That was Lindsay Smith of Real Agriculture talking to Jennifer Wright of the Canadian Agricultural Human Resource Council. Here's my thoughts. And I've talked a lot about how we need to bring more people into this tent of agriculture, people that didn't grow up on a farm. We, we need to do that. But I am more and more convinced, like we have been talking about this. So either we are poor at execution. These are not new ideas. Okay. So either we're just not following through and we're good at talking as an industry, but we're not good at following through on it. Or the the numbers are the numbers and there just is not this supply of labor. By the way, this is all happening at a time where the immigration minister is talking about dialing back on TFWs. Uh, that's a massive problem for the industry. That ain't going to help these numbers. If I was farming in Canada right now or in the U.S., I would be 100% committed to finding autonomous solutions, robotic solutions for my farming operation. Broad acre, fruit and vegetable, livestock, whatever it is, I would be searching hard and fast because I, I just think that's the most viable solution going forward at this point. Send me your feedback, Haney at realagriculture.com. Thanks so much for joining us here today for Real Ag on the weekend. You've been listening to 650 CKOM, 980 CGME. Please check out realagriculture.com over the weekend. Cheers, everybody. Cheers, everybody.